American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. So our next speaker is Janice Fine. As most of you probably already know, Janice, too, is the author of a very important book called Worker Centers, which is really the, the most comprehensive treatment out there of the phenomenon that has sort of sprung up in the last couple decades of um, mostly immigrant and not exclusively oriented worker centers that advocate and organize, uh, or advocate on behalf of and organize low-wage workers across the country, um, and they're a sort of indispensable part of today's social movement panorama. So in the 20 minutes I'm gonna, uh, that I have, I'm going to contrast the situation of the triangle shirtwaist workers with low-wage immigrant workers today. Um, in terms of migration and the role immigrant workers were playing in the labor force then and now, immigration policy then and now, and talk a little bit about why there are so many more undocumented today than there were then. Um, labor standards and occupational health, sort of then and now, and then immigrant worker organizing today, so I better get going because I have a big agenda. Um, uh, so um, first on migration and the role of immigrant workers in the labor force, um, I think what's important to, I want to stipulate everything that May said, um, you know, talking about history in front of May Nye is like, I don't know, talking about, um, I don't know what, um, but whatever. Uh, so during the golden era, um, you know, in the golden era in quotes for all the reasons May has said, um, between 1880 and 1920, um, 23 million immigrants arrived in a country that in 1900 numbered 76 million. So by 1920, four out of 10 inhabitants of the largest US cities were foreign born and an additional two out of 10 were children of immigrants. So we're talking about a huge, huge moment. Um, about 621,000 people were coming a year at its height. Okay, so I wanna contrast that to now. Um, between 1990 and 2000, in sheer numbers, more immigrants arrived in the US than during any previous period in American history. And this is partly why I think it's really important to grapple with the kind of schizophrenia that we're seeing in the last 20 years around immigration. Because in a lot of ways, we have never acknowledged the scale and the scope and the size of what's gone on with immigration since 1990. Um, so I think that's a, a really important thing um, to keep in mind. And again, as we know, there are some very striking differences between the golden era and today's immigrants. The first one is ethnicity. Um, 90% of the immigrants who came to the United States during the golden era were from Europe and were what would now, and I, I really want to underline now, be considered ethnic whites. Um, this is a category, you know, as May has referred to, that in a lot of ways was invented um, by my people, <laughs> in part, um, during an earlier era, right? But today, only 15% of today's immigrants um, are from Europe. Half are from Latin America, and Mexicans are comprising a full third of the total, right? So one big difference is ethnicity between those two waves. And the racialization of this debate and what we're seeing in Arizona, um, you know, we can't say enough about it, um, about understanding that huge, important distinction. Um, uh, it was one thing for, uh, for ethnic whites to become white, you know, to figure out how to sort of work that jujitsu. It's much tougher if you're a Latino or, uh, or Asian. Um, in terms of legal status, the vast majority of immigrants arriving during the golden era received an immediate authorization to work and embarked on a pathway to citizenship. Today, fully one quarter of all foreign-born immigrants are estimated to be undocumented. I'm gonna say more about that in a minute. So that's another huge difference is legal status. And finally is residence, which is really interesting. Um, the vast majority of immigrants during the golden era went straight to the cities. But we know that now 54% of Latinos, and actually the number's even higher, are living in, um, are living in the suburbs. And um, 
the number of Latinos living in the suburbs increased enormously in the 1990s. So that's a, another main um, important difference. Um, and you know, we know, uh, I'll just say that, um, that we know uh, that there is still a wage penalty for being foreign born in the United States. Um, the median weekly earning in 2008 uh, for foreign born was $595, um, native born was 744. Um, and I want to talk specifically about the low wage workforce. 21% um, of the low wage workforce in the United States today is low wage. Uh, sorry, uh, is foreign born. Um, and uh, and the, the biggest areas of, of, um, of, the, of the economy where they're active, farming, fishing, forestry, construction, 40% of the low wage workforce is foreign born in construction. Manufacturing, 33%. Food service, 24%. Um, so we know that there's a, um, that there's a, a huge swath of, of the American workforce um, that's foreign born and that's low wage, and I'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. Um, okay, so uh, what I wanted to do was talk a little bit about, um, about the undocumented and, and say a little bit about why there are so many undocumented um, today. You know, what's the difference between policy then versus policy now? Um, so there's four main categories of, of immigrants in the U.S. Labor migrants, um, those are legal and undocumented workers in search of sort of unskilled jobs, what we consider to be unskilled, although that's another um, idea that needs to be thought about more deeply. Um, professionals, entrepreneurial immigrants, and refugees and asylees. Um, but in the U.S. today, labor migrants represent the bulk of immigrants, both legal and undocumented. So why are there so many labor migrants? Why are there so many undocumented? The first is family slots are backed up for years or people just simply don't qualify for them. There are two biases sort of embedded in our, um, in our immigration policy. The first is a bias toward family preference, family reunification, but only immediate family. Um, and the second is toward skilled work. Um, so <laughs> I thought you were going to say something. Um, so the second is employment is so narrowly defined that very few workers can come through employment at all. Right, so we have a bias in our system that's very, very heavily toward professional and highly skilled workers. So does anybody have a guess about how many um, workers can come, how many low-skilled workers can come through the employment visas a year from the whole world? Oh my God, don't all speak at once, Jesus. We're not that big a group, right? So we're talking about 20,000. Right, we're talking about a, a tiny, tiny, tiny number, right? So it's five. not like what? Five. 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 We changed it for five in, in 1994. Okay, um, so it's worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, and finally, the obstacles to legal immigration are much higher than they were for immigrants arriving in the U.S. at the turn of the 20th century. Until 1921, there were no numerical limits or quotas for the number of immigrants allowed to enter the country, with the exception, and it's a big exception, of the Chinese Exclusion Act and the Asiatic bar, um, Barred Zone, most immigrants who arrived at a port of entry and were not found ill with a contagious disease, not likely to become a public charge, and not found to be convicted of a crime or certifiably insane were admitted into the U.S. as legal residents, right? Today, we have legal status for those who fit within a much more restricted set of categories. You have to have a sibling, a spouse, or a parent who has a green card or is a citizen. You have to show that you're going to experience persecution if you return to your home country. And even if you do, um, very seldom are you believed. You have to have job skills that are in demand by employers. So most undocumented immigrants are labor migrants who don't qualify for any of these categories. Um, and punishment for entering the country illegally offers as a strong disincentive um, to apply for legal status, even for those who do qualify. 
So I think that's a, a really important um, context setting. You know, that there's this way that there's this assumption that people are undocumented because they want to be, right? Or people are undocumented because it's some sort of force of nature instead of this realization that it's policy and politics um, and that they were very different back then. You know, there was some kind of understanding um, that there was an enormous need for, for um, industrial labor. Now we have the same kind of demand for labor and nowhere near the kind of recognition um, in policy circles of, of what that means um, in terms of our immigration policy. Um, and uh, sadly, we've got more deportations going on under Obama than under any previous regime, right? And the numbers are, are kind of mind-blowing. Um, uh, the numbers of deportations in general tripled under Bush and kept rising ever since. So during the fiscal year 2009, there were 387,790 immigrants deported, up from 264,000 under Bush's last year. Um, and ICE is unabashedly setting a goal of more and more deportations, right? The number this year was to do 400,000. And although there's been an emphasis on um, trying to increase criminal deportations, as it turns out, that's not the case. Um, the vast majority of people who are being deported have not committed crimes, um, have never been charged, and to the extent they've committed crimes, many of them were talking about misdemeanors and traffic violations. Um, so in this situation, sweatshops are not a thing of the past um, for low-wage foreign-born workers, if anything. Um, and some, you could argue, economists have argued that what was the model under, uh, in garment and agriculture has now become the model across the economy in a whole lot of other sectors, right? Whether that's trucking, um, warehousing, manufacturing, um, you know, healthcare, uh, you know, there's a, a kind of a, um, a, a shift to subcontracting and, um, you know, strategies of lean production across the board in, in many um, sectors. So um, in some ways, the way I think about it is that if we have 43 million low-wage workers in the U.S., 25% of them at poverty wages, you can think of it as an immigration policy problem or you can think about it as a labor market problem. Right? If we think it's an immigration policy or a labor supply issue, then we think that um, fewer low-wage immigrants will lead somehow magically to higher wages and better working conditions for those who are here. You follow me? Yeah. Right? Um, but if we think it's a labor market problem, then it's the prevalence of subcontracting and independent contracting, the lack of regulation requiring living wages and benefits, the, little, you know, the, the under-monitoring of working conditions and wage payment in so many industries the lack of unions or collective action um, among workers are the real problem, and the real solution is re-governing the market, right? So um, let me just say a little bit, how am I doing on time? You have, um, you're doing great, you have like 10 more minutes. Okay, yeah. so let me just say a little bit about, about um, compliance with the Fair Labor Standards Act and the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Um, Non-compliance with minimum standards is at historic levels, right? We've got 26% of low-wage workers in the nation's three cities in a study that, that Ruth uh, co-authored um, suffered minimum wage violations in the week prior to a 2009 national survey. So 26% of workers who got a call said that in the past week, um, that in the week prior to the survey, um, they had suffered minimum wage violations. 76% of workers who labored more than 40 hours weren't paid according to overtime laws. Um, regional non-compliance levels were over 50% in nursing homes, poultry processing. So I'm talking about non-compliance with minimum wage and overtime laws, right? You know, very, very basic um, requirements. Occupational health and safety, still 5,500 workers die a year on the job in the United States. Um, still 5.7 million are injured or become ill due to workplace hazards. I think it's, it would be terrible to... Um, 
uh, you know, to, to act as though we haven't made progress in 100 years, that's just patently false. But we haven't made nearly as much progress as we need to make, and that's the point. Um, during Triangle, we had a, a sweating system, crowded factories, um, you know, poorly paid workers, uh, tremendously unsafe contracting system, um, and the pig market. Um, did people, you know, read about the, the pig market? You know, there was a day labor shape-up site, you know, on the Lower East Side where factory contract, contract um, employers could go and hire um, low-wage garment workers off the street, right? Um, and uh, lots of, of low-wage laborers, so employers sort of felt like they had the upper, upper, upper hand, right? Well, today, you know, this structure in garment has spread to, as I said before, construction, landscaping, janitorial, trucking, meatpacking, manufacturing, food service, poultry processing. Um, and this spread of a, of a contracting market, um, so destructive to organizing because employers are able to shield themselves from taking responsibility for their workforces. Um, and immediate employers, the contractors themselves, are often pressured to keep um, costs low. So the pig market is alive and well, right, in labor and temporary agencies across the United States. Um, you know, in New Jersey, where I live, um, we just, I run this project called the Rector's Immigrant Infrastructure Mapping Project, and we're doing research on, on um, immigrant populations in New Jersey. And if you overlay um, the largest portion of where um, Latinos are distributed in the state, you can almost perfectly overlay where the largest numbers of temp agencies are city by city, right, um, and, uh, and temporary employment agencies. Um, so why has it gotten to be so bad? Um, well, one thing we know didn't cause it, and we know in part because of another great book um, that hasn't been mentioned today, which is uh, made in, well, which is um, Ruth's book about L.A. Story, right? Um, and what Ruth talks about is that, is that the, the deunionization um, and the industrial restructuring that transformed trucking, residential construction, and building services in the garment industry actually took place way before the latest wave of immigration. So the idea somehow that there's a cause and effect between um, rising immigration and, um, and the ways that these industries have been, um, uh, have been transformed and degraded is just wrong. Um, so, uh, so let me just say um, that's sort of the, um, the sort of the world as I see it um, in terms of, of like sort of the, 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 uh, the contrast. And um, uh, what about the labor movement? And let me just say a little bit about sort of the state of play in the labor movement. We know that the vast majority of, of, um, of foreign-born workers are working in the private sector today where unionization rates are very, very low. And um, um, in construction in 2010, unionization, you know, we used to think of construction as highly unionized, 15% today, private sector construction. Manufacturing, non-durable manufacturing, 12%. Um, transportation and warehousing, higher, um, 30%, um, although it's been on the decline since 1990. Retail, 5.4%. Um, hospitals, 16%. Nursing homes, 7.7%. That's the situation, right? <coughs> Private sector unionization, it's one worker out of 13 now um, that's um, a member of a union. Um, and, you know, we know why um, it's so difficult to, to organize workers today. We know that the, you know, the, the reason that we talk about a lot is, is um, employer opposition. And employer opposition is fierce. There's no getting around it. Um, you know, Kate Bronfenbrenner has just done um, kind of or recently has, has sort of updated her numbers. Um, and, you know, they're, they're horrible. 63% of employers interrogating workers in mandatory one-on-one -on -one meetings. 54% of employers threatening workers in those meetings, 57% of employers threatening to close the work site, 47% threatening to cut wages and benefits, 34% threatening to fire workers, right? I mean, you know, this is the 
the world that we live in. Um, um, and you know, we also know that it doesn't stop after the union drive, even after elections are won. Um, after a successful election, 52% a year later of newly formed unions still didn't have a contract, right? Um, two years after an election, 37% of newly formed unions still didn't have a contract, right? So employer opposition is vicious, but it's not the whole story. And um, that's what you know, I wanted to, to just say a little bit about that um, and, and then talk a little bit about why I think that a lot of what's going on that's really, um, I have to build on what Sarita Gupta said, um, that's going on uh, in terms of, of grassroots organizing among immigrant workers is happening alongside the labor movement, but not always inside the labor movement. Um, and that's that um, most American, uh, most of our um, New Deal um, labor and employment uh, laws make an assumption that workers are going to be in long-term, permanent, um, stable employment with a single uh, with a single employer, right? And our, um, our our laws make that assumption, and our unions are structured the same way. And the problem is that that's true or holds true for fewer and fewer workers um, in our economy, and particularly holds true for fewer and fewer low-wage immigrant workers in our economy. And yet. Um, if you want to join a union today and you're a low-wage immigrant worker, it's really hard to do, right? Sometimes the best unions, the ones that are most um, that are that are most strategic in their organizing, are the most parsimonious about the targets they choose, right? It's not easy if you want to be in a union today. And so, partly the reason I wrote the book about the wor about worker centers was because I was trying to understand, given the decline of the labor movement, political parties, organizations that had traditionally played this role. Um, in the lives of low-wage workers, I wanted to understand who was trying to fill that void. And um, what's kind of, I guess, the, the kind of good news, um, to end on that note, as May has, right, is that all across the country, low-wage immigrant workers are organizing, despite the fact that, you know, structurally, it's become so difficult to do that inside the labor movement. Um, Sarita talked about the victory um, that was won this year for domestic workers, you know, um, which was, you know, astounding. And, um, and incredibly inspiring and exciting. But you know, if you look at taxi workers who are organizing in this city um, and now across the country, if you look at restaurant workers um, who are organizing, um, you know, the restaurant workers uh, are, you know, have federated. You know, there's, um, the restaurant workers have federated. They now have eight um, affiliated organizations around the country. Rock United in New York is now Rock United nationally. Um, the day laborers now have, you know, um, I think about 45 organizations around the country. Um, there are a number of these um, organizations that, that, are, um, that are growing and expanding and winning in a period that is almost impossible. I'll just leave you with one thought. One of the things that, um, that I thought about when I worked on the book about, about worker centers was that they were having tremendous success in organizing around public policy and less success in winning directly against private sector employers. And now, if you look around, you kind of see that that, um, that was true of everyone, right? That, you know, that the private sector in general has proven very difficult to organize. Where most of the um, labor movement is today is in the public sector. And where most victories have been won, even on the part of private sector unions, has been through public policy and politics. So this is something that's not just true of, um, of low-wage immigrant workers who have been organizing through worker centers. Um, if I had more time, I'd talk a little bit more um, about that, but I'll, I'll just leave it there. Thank you very much.